0: Well, hello there. First, I want to give a huge thanks to all the listeners who heard our plea and gave us a rating or review on iTunes. Thank you so, so much. You are helping us continue to spread the word about the show and we are so grateful. Please keep it up. If you haven't already, we would still welcome a review in iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more likely people are to discover us. But more broadly, we want to get our show into the ears of more listeners. If you support what we're doing, please help us get the word out. Tell your friends and share us on your social media channels. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, one more thing. So this is kind of a random question. But what is 75 squared times the cube root of 512,000 plus 10,000 divided by 10,000 to the negative one?
2: 4.6 billion.
0: The Earth forms.
2: Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous Tertiary. 65 million.
0: Meteor kills the dinosaurs.
2: 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000.
0: Agricultural
2: Revolution.
0: Industrial
2: Revolution. 60. Great animals. acceleration. The Anthropocene.
0: Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where every week we bring you stories about people, the planet, and yes, people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang. From the very beginning, Generation Anthropocene has been a place to have conversations about environmental problems. But more than that, about environmentalism itself. Most millennials are reluctant to label themselves as environmentalists. The term just carries a lot of baggage and negative connotations. Does that mean that young people don't care about issues like climate change and biodiversity loss? We don't think so. So in order to understand the legacy of the environmental movement, we've tried to carve a space on this podcast where young people can ask hard questions from the generation that came before us. And one of the most prominent environmentalists of the baby boomer generation is David Suzuki. If you're not familiar with him, Suzuki is a Canadian scholar, climate activist, and media figure. He's hosted both radio and television shows about the natural world and environmental issues. Our producer Mike Osborne reached out to David Suzuki a few months ago and was pretty excited when he agreed to an interview. They started off by talking about climate change and energy systems. But as you'll hear, their conversation expands into generational environmental values – as well as human history and our evolving role in Earth's ecosystems. Now, before we get to the conversation, a quick side note. Unfortunately, we had a weird technical issue the day we recorded this, so you'll hear that Mike sounds a little echoey in a few places. Sorry about that. So let's get to it. Here is Mike's conversation with David Suzuki.
1: Hi, I'm David Suzuki. I'm uh, now what I call an elder, which is a very... uh respected position in most societies and as an elder i feel this is the most important time in my life because i don't have to play any games to get a job a raise or a promotion i can speak the truth now and um if that offends people that's their problem not mine
2: that's uh maybe the best self-intro i've yet recorded so um (laughs) (laughs) uh so I want to I want to start by creating some some visuals and and some vision for the listener. Uh, I've I've heard you emphasize that the way we see the world shapes our behavior towards the world. And I want to take that theme and apply it to how we see energy. One of my favorite David Suzuki moments is in a documentary film when you described our energy, fossil fuels, as fossil sunlight. I I can't tell you how often I reuse that uh, framing and that terminology. So maybe we could start there.
1: Well, you know, as a biologist, I think in evolutionary terms and, uh, you know, in the early days after life evolved, it was a very difficult world because these one-celled organisms lived in the oceans and they had to really scrounge for energy. Energy was the prime factor that was needed to carry out all of the chemical reactions that life needs. And it was when plants single-celled uh, organisms that discovered a way to capture the energy in sunlight and convert that those photons of light into molecules that stored that energy that was a great breakthrough. So the the big generator then of, of life was the energy ability of plants to capture and store that vast amount of energy, and it ultimately led to the formation of plants that ultimately creeped up onto land because suddenly there was all that sunlight and there weren't any competitors. And over millions and millions of years, that plant life accumulated in underground and ultimately became what are known as the fossil fuels. So you think of coal, oil, and gas, All of that energy that was captured over millions and millions of years by plants now is sequestered uh, underground, and we've been able to take advantage of that. But, you know, today we realize that when human beings were small in number and we didn't uh, use much more than just fires that we light, we are now uh, fueling our industrial and economic growth by using oil, coal, and gas And there is so much being burned now that we are liberating a massive amount of carbon into the atmosphere. Now, Earth has had this perfectly balanced uh, greenhouse gas uh, layer around the planet that has allowed the temperature to enable life to have evolved. Now, we are changing that equation because we are suddenly liberating vast amounts of that energy uh, that's been stored in the ground all at once, but this is the challenge then this great gift from our distant ancestors now has become a threat because we are using so much of the fossil fuel and liberating it too quickly
2: i mean i think what i love most about uh, about everything you just said was beginning by introducing this evolutionary deep time perspective because when you stop and think of how many times the Earth has spun on its axis and how many times the Earth has revolved around the sun and the slow incremental process of photosynthesis on a day-to-day, you know, every time the sun rises yeah. and every time the sun sets, um, that that what you have is the accumulation, the slow incremental accumulation of this unbelievable amount of uh, of chemical energy that all of a sudden you know the the great irony or the great sort of mystery and, and, and wonder of the human race is that then Earth evolves a species that has the capacity to tap into that chemical energy and release it in this great spasm of excitement and uh, economic activity and that and when you look at it from that lens it this moment is astonishing.
1: I agree and I think, The challenge of our species now is, you know, people say, well, I want to save the planet, or I want to protect Earth. Don't worry about the planet. The planet did fine without us, and long after we're gone, the planet will still be here doing its thing. The question is, are we upsetting the conditions that have enabled life, not only humans, but all life to flourish, or have we become so powerful that we're undermining the very life support systems of the planet. And I think that's, uh, that's the challenge. We have become, in the 20th and 21st century, a very impatient creature. We want to do it now. And the one thing that nature requires to both do her thing, but also to reveal her secrets, is time. We need time. And uh, we've just become this accelerated animal that just... We want it faster and faster. And I think of the kind of movies that I've been involved making, you know, nature films. When you go to the Amazon, do not expect to see all of the flurry of life that you show in David Suzuki's films on the nature of things, because that ain't the way nature operates. You've got to go down there. First of all, most of the action is up in the canopy 100 feet above the ground, but a lot of it happens at night. And uh, you have to be patient. You have to stake out your your photographers for weeks or months and uh, capture, you know, a jaguar coming on its prey and capturing it and all of these incredible shots. But we then edit them together into a one-hour film, and my God, you'd think, oh, wow, I can't wait to go to the Amazon. There's going to be all of this action taking place. But it's not that way. Nature needs time to reveal her secrets. And people like me, uh, we create a vision of nature popped up and pumped up on steroids as if, whoa, look at all this stuff. We've got to be a much more patient animal. And that's, I'm afraid, something that politics and economics doesn't take into account. We want it all now, and we've become a very impatient animal.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think when I look at um, students today who I teach and, you know, the name of this show is Generation Anthropocene. I see a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement in the food movement and eating, you know, local food and eating organic food and, uh, you know, becoming vegetarian. And I think a real part of the reason for that enthusiasm is that we have some agency as eaters. We make decisions all the time. And even though we've created an industrialized food system that masks some of the benefits nature is delivering to us, we can we can be more intentional as individuals. I see that as being a kind of harder challenge when it comes to energy. We don't feel the carbon we're burning. We don't have that visceral, you know, take it into the body experience. I mean we do actually, but but we don't we're not as conscious of it. Our our energy and our electrons are flowing to us from very distant places. And so it's sort of hard to have the same, you know, kind of tools that we've developed in uh, in in, eat, in being more conscious as uh, carnivores or or as omnivores uh, as, it, as it is to, en-
1: to energy do you know do you know what I'm getting at here? you have absolutely you have put your finger on the absolutely critical issue and I believe the challenge of our time is that we no longer see the world. That we're embedded in that uh, energy is one of those abstract things. You turn on the light, and it never occurs to one to ask where the hell did the energy that fuels that light? Where is it coming from? We don't we don't think a thing about that, and it's been that way with food. You know, especially in the 20th century when we've really got hooked on this this uh, uh, fast foods where everything is processed and basically. You go in not to enjoy the, the eating of another organism. We don't think about it that way at all. When you go to a store, virtually every reminder of the biological nature of our food, you know, scales and feathers and fur, all of that blood, all of that has been removed so that a kid that goes to Kentucky Fried Chicken has no idea that that chicken uh, nugget is, is, a, is a bird. And the urban food movement I find very, very exciting because young kids especially suddenly discovering that food grows in the soil and that you get your fingernails uh, dirty, uh, your hands dirty, and, and you can actually grow something that you will consume. That's the beginning of a really important reconnection with our place in nature, and that is You know, I keep saying that we're teaching our children the wrong lessons. When I go to Toronto, I ask the young children, uh, when you flush the toilet, do you know where it goes? They have no idea. When you turn the tap on and drink the water, where does it come from? They have no idea. When you turn on the lights, where does the electricity? They don't know. They begin to get the idea when you tell them, when you flush the toilet, it goes ultimately into Lake Ontario. And then when you turn on the tap to take take a drink, it comes out of Lake Ontario. And they then begin to, oh my goodness, you begin to realize that there are cycles, and thanks to Mother Nature, that poop that you flush out ultimately uh, is cleansed and that water goes back out into the source of your drinking. And whether your energy... That you, when you turn on the light comes from a nuclear plant, comes from a coal burning plant, comes from a, a windmill or or a solar panel. Kids ought to know that because there are repercussions, and we've got to understand that every aspect of the way that we now live ultimately goes back and with re- huge repercussions in nature, and we've got to be much more aware of the way that we're living and its consequences.
2: So, you know, to bring it back a little bit to the energy system and connecting us with a more lived, you know, visceral consciousness of uh, what it means to generate energy from a solar panel or from a geothermal plant or from biofuels or from coal or from nuclear or whatever you know what what are the necessary steps to to make that part of a, of a lived reality i mean i feel like so much of the built environment is uh is is designed around Masking the, the the natural world, so yeah, I, I wonder what a world that 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 is a little bit more uh, transparent and 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 that we see with clearer eyes would look like.
1: You know, I think that we've spent a great deal of time in architecture and building, showing how great we are. You know, our buildings were these massive structures that soared to the to the heights, and and they were great to look at and impressive monuments. But now, at the end of the, the, the 1900s, at the end of the 20th century, we began to realize, oh, there are repercussions. And the energy issue has really made us uh, begin to reassess everything that we do. So that I'm very, very proud of the fact that in Seattle, if you go to the Bullet Building, here is a big building that's being used by you know several floors. And that building puts more electricity onto the grid than it actually requires to operate the entire building. In other words, that building is, is uh, consuming less energy than it's contributing to the rest of the city. Uh, there are examples going on all over now that uh, show there are other ways of doing things. You know, I'm always uh, saying when you fly over a forest and look down on it, you see every green thing in that forest is looking up to the sky saying, give it to me. Give me that sunlight. That's what I want. That's what powers a forest. Then you fly over a city like Vancouver, where I live, and all you see are the flat roofs of warehouses and big buildings, concrete sidewalks and, and asphalt roads. And you see, you say, what the heck kind of species is this that has all of those surfaces that are being radiated with sunlight, and they're not even taking advantage of it. The Bullet uh, Building in Seattle is doing that. There are uh, there's an entire suburb now in Germany, where all of the buildings return money to the to the homeowners because the uh, the solar panels and uh, and geothermal energy allow each dweller in the building to return more en- energy to the city than they're getting. So they're making money by contributing energy onto the grid. And in, in France, they are building a 1,000 kilometers of highway where the material on the highway is a solar panel. And so that thousand kilometers of highway will feed, I, I don't remember the number, but hundreds of thousands of homes will get their energy now from those solar roads. In the United States, you're building massive solar uh, solar arrays now that are concentrating the sunlight to uh, melt salts at temperatures like four or 500 degrees. And then uh, at night, when the sun goes down, the heat in those molten salts can be used to create steam and drive turbines. I mean, the the revolution in energy is is on us. And the challenge now is to help people who are in the fossil fuel industries to transition into the new uh, the new renewable, clean energy revolution. We have been deliberately addicted to the high energy use through consumption. I just want to remind you, you know, there is still a generation that remembers how difficult life was during the Great Depression. My mother and father were married in Vancouver right during the early part of the Great Depression. And because of those tough times, they banged into our heads, my sisters and me, the lessons they learned from that. They said, live within your means, save some for tomorrow, share, don't be greedy, help your neighbors, They may one day, you may one day need their help. You have to work hard to buy the necessities in life, but you don't run after money as if having more money makes you a more important, better person. These are things that they raised us with, and I am sure those are the kinds of things that all of that generation that came through the depression remembered and taught their family the problem was the great the salvation of the great depression that brought us out of that time was world war two wars have always been great to start the factories going to make bullets and and guns and and tanks and planes they get the the economy going like mad and they did the same thing in north america when the war, Second World War started, uh, America became the, the heart of all of the weapons uh, that were generated for the Allies. But as World War II was coming to an end, the president realized, oh, my goodness, we're going into peace. How do we transition a wartime economy into a peacetime economy? And the solution was consumption. We've got to make consumption an American way of life. Get Americans to buy things, use them up, throw them away, and buy more. And it worked. Consumption now is so much a part of our lives, and that consumption is based on a very energy-intensive production. And the cost, of course, is the cost to the planet.
2: Well, so, okay, I think you actually really helped me further my thinking. We're not talking about reducing consumption. I mean, I've heard you say in previous interviews and, and publicly that as a society, we're committed to growth, which is a state. It's not actually, it's, it, it's a description of a system. It's not actually a goal in and of itself. It doesn't make exactly. any sense. Uh, and I think that this is something that uh, the next generation of environmental thinkers and environmental activists have a hard time uh, adhering to is minimalism as a virtue, is restraint, is compromise, is is, is backing away from this consumption uh, overall because it's so tempting and it's so easy to get swept up in the I don't have enough in life, I got to get more, 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 more. I actually think we're talking about something much messier, much more complicated and much more difficult to internalize.
1: You know, I, for the last several years, I've been saying that the environmental movement has been a failure. And while, you know, in, in the environmental movement in the beginning was unbelievably successful, I, I, I mark the beginning of the environmental movement with Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. And, uh, you know, when that book came out in 1962, there wasn't a single Department of the Environment at any level of any government on the planet. The word environment simply didn't mean what it has come to mean today. And certainly, as a result of her book, you've got millions and millions of people involved in the environmental movement, departments in, of the environment, uh, uh, you've got laws to protect air, water, and endangered species. But we, I find today that the battles that I engaged in 40 years ago, many of them are back on the agenda the, the ones that we thought we won, stopping dams, stopping proposals to drill for oil in sensitive areas, uh, stopping the, 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 the use of lakes and rivers to dump pollutants, we won those battles 30, 35 years ago, and now we're fighting exactly the same battles again. And the failure of the environmental movement, as we were involved in those battles, was to get people to see truly the the way that we live. We are animals. And as animals, we have some fundamental needs. So,
2: okay, I, I want to play devil's advocate for a second and defend the, the modern industrial global economy, not as a system that we should keep, but as a system that has some logic in hindsight. Because when we take that framing that you introduced that i think is excellent that uh, the reminder that humans are an animal we are descended from the evolutionary tree among other concerns besides clean water and clean air and food is not being eaten i mean i think a little bit about about the native americans who colonized north america 20000 years ago and uh, and, and the megafauna extinction that followed. And there's a part of me that's really glad, I don't have to worry about saber tooth tigers. That's great. And I think that part of what we do with the built environment is, is, is try and build a place that's safe. So while I think our obscuring ourselves from nature uh, is, is deeply problematic because we get to a point where we forget about the life support systems that sustain us, uh, the other side of that is that the environment can be a dangerous place. And for most of human history, it was. And so I think that that instinct in us uh, runs really deep as well.
1: Well, by your logic, we should kill every lion and bear and tiger because we're coming to take their land and uh, they're, a, they're a danger to us. You're reveling in the loss of saber-toothed tigers. Extinction, extinction is a part of... Uh, the history of this planet, 99.9999% of all species that have ever existed are now extinct. And so, you know, our extinction is also inevitable. So, So extinction by itself is not a great tragedy. The tragedy today is the speed and the scale of the extinction crisis that is being caused by a single creature. That's us. As the top predator on the planet, if we think we can un- knock out the underpinnings of uh, that food web and think we're going to survive, that's absolutely ridiculous we're, because we're biological creatures. It's amazing to me when you think that we are only 150,000 years old. We were born in Africa, and that was our home, and then as we began to move into new ecosystems, even though we were only armed with stone axes and spears, we were able to extinguish megafauna astonishingly successful you can as we spread across the planet you can follow the the extinction of the big slow moving creatures and we were we were an effective predator but as we moved out of africa into new areas we were an invasive species for heaven's sakes we didn't know wow, they're all these flightless birds, they're easy to catch, and bang, we we caught them. and, And it was only over time they began to go, holy cow, you know, the things that we moved here for, they're gone now. And either they moved on again, or the people that said, no, we're staying, they became ultimately the indigenous people all over the planet whose knowledge base was based on the experiences of their ancestors, the mistakes the successes, the failures of their ancestors are deeply embedded in the, in the knowledge base of indigenous people all over the world, because those experiences were critical to the long-term survival. The basis of living that way leads you to very different consequences from those who think it's all there for us. We just have to be smart enough. We can get rid of all the dangers, and we can live and, and and use all the stuff. We just have to be smart enough to exploit it. And I think this is why the power of, of indigenous people is so great and attracting many environmentalists now. They begin with a very different sense of their place in nature. Now, at the very top of this interview, you said that you wanted to discuss my statement that the way we see the world shapes the way that we act to that world. And I think that's the critical failure of the environmental movement. Right now, we operate in a world where we think we're the center of the action and everything is about us. I tell people years ago, I went to a small village on the side of a mountain in the Andes in Peru, and I learned that the children there are taught that that mountain is an Apu. Apu, in their language, means a god. And as long as that Apu casts its shadow on the village, it will determine the fate of everyone in that village. Now, you imagine how those kids grow up and treat that mountain compared to a kid in the Rocky Mountains of North America who's taught all their lives, those mountains are full of gold and silver. The way you see the world profoundly shapes the way you treat it. So is a forest a sacred grove or is it just timber and pulp? Is a river the circulatory system of the land or an opportunity for irrigation and energy? Is another species our biological kin or a resource? Is a soil a complex community of organisms or just dirt? Is your house real estate and property or is it your home? We've got to start looking out at the world in a very different way, or we're going to continue to trash it, because we think we're the center of the action, and everything is about us. It's not. That,
2: to me, is a fantastic segue into my final question, which is about the anthropocene certainly there's a debate happening among the uh stratigraphers and earth scientists about where we might place the boundary for the anthropocene and some say that's an academic question i think that's kind of true but i also think that there's a cultural and perhaps political undertone to where the proverbial golden spike may go and i think that uh what what I mean when I say that is that if we were to place the boundary somewhere in the industrial Revolution or at the onset of it um, that there's a kind of a, a, a hidden meaning in that and that that's where we started to go wrong you can also talk to paleoclimatologists who say you know early agricultural humans were actually changing the climate system thousands of years ago in ways that that we're only beginning to understand uh, and there's a lot of places to place the boundary and I don't care so much about you know where you would place it exactly, but I do want to hear your perspective on humans uh, having made a wrong turn somewhere, and where at the at the risk of introducing nostalgia, did we take a wrong turn somewhere that you would love to correct?
1: You know, if you think of our home as or our birthplace as the Great Plains of Africa. And try to imagine if you were in a a time machine that could go back to that 150,000 years ago and hover above the Great Plains. It would be a magnificent sight that would put what you can see on the Serengeti uh, today to shame. I mean, it would be just filled with animals and plants in numbers and size and abundance beyond anything that you can see today. And you'd have to look very hard to spot the three or four uh, human beings that were gathered in little clumps. And you got to say, uh, we weren't very impressive. I mean, we weren't very big, we weren't fast, we weren't strong, we weren't endowed with special sensory abilities. Like, what the hell? How could that little creature have the conceit to think it could ultimately take over the planet? And, of course, the answer is that it was the two-kilogram organ buried deep in our skulls. The human brain was this amazing evolutionary uh, step up for our species that gave us a huge advantage. And we, we did things that were, I think, very unique. We learned from our, our experiences. We passed those, uh, those lessons on. And we invented an idea that no other animal has called a future because we invented the concept of a future. I mean, the future doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is now and what we remember from the past. But because we invented a concept called the future, we are the only animal that could deliberately affect the future by what we do today. We are also this incredible tool maker. These are not unique human characteristics, but we have been able to take these abilities, and, and push them beyond anything any other creature uh, has. Humans have had a, an impact that led to big changes, but we had also time and small numbers of human beings, and nature is const- has constantly been able to alter. Nature is resilient and repair itself, albeit changed. What has happened now, and I don't Care what what, if we can put a concrete date on it? Is we've had the conjunction of four factors that have really been overwhelming. One, of course, is population. Now, I was born in 1936 when there were just over two billion people in the world. In my lifetime, the population of the planet has more than tripled. I mean that's amazing, and every one of the people that's born and added to the population has to, has to breathe air, drink water, eat food, and clothe and shelter ourselves just on the basis of our numbers. We are the most numerous vertebrate on the planet, as far as I know. Uh, we have a very big ecological footprint. It takes a lot of air, water, and land to support over 7 billion of us. But of course, we're not like rabbits or rats or mice. We have a tremendous amount of technology. Most of that technology has been developed over the last hundred years, and that technology enables us to explore every part of the planet in the search of raw materials for our economy and to use the entire planet to dump our toxic wastes. And now we've, we're afflicted by a, a tremendous appetite for stuff. We love to shop so it's not about the necessities in life it's just that we dig shopping we love it and consumption the everything we consume comes out of the earth and every, and when we're finished with it it goes back into the earth consumption technology population and then a global economy that demands that we use up everything that we've got because a global economy is not based or limited by the constraints of nature, and it is based on current economics uh, theory is based on the notion that growth is possible, endless growth is possible, which it is not, and that it's necessary that the very definition of progress is by growth. This is suicidal. So when you add all of these things up our numbers, our technology, our consumptive demand, and a global economy driving uh, the way we behave, we have become a creature creating the Anthropocene epoch.
2: David Suzuki, what an honor and a pleasure to to connect. Uh, Thank you for all you've contributed in the past. Thank you for making the time, and I wish you the best of luck with your next stage of life.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. Good talking to you, Mike.
0: Generation Anthropocene is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, and me, Leslie Chang. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Mattson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. You can also find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. And before we go, we have some very exciting news. As of a week and a half ago, there is one more special tiny person on the planet. Her name is Alafair Catherine Osborne, and she is beautiful. Big congratulations to Mike and Allison Osborne on their second child. Mike, dude, enjoy your paternity leave. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week.